If you want to teach a child the truth about life, if you really want a child to pay attention to you and really get it, you want to get across some really important truth, and you really want it to be embedded deeply within them, if so, there may, are probably no more important words in your arsenal. <laughs> if you really want to convey a truth to a child, probably the four most important words in the English language then are these. Once upon a time. I don't know why, but it seems to be the case that that's not only true for little children, but it's true for grown-ups too. What is it about stories? When you want to get truth across, we need logical propositions, we need propositional truth, we need facts. But if you really, what is it? If you really want to get truth across, it's stories. Even as a, in all these years of preaching, I know the whole atmosphere in the room changes. When you go from propositional truth, propositional truth number two, sub-point A, sub-point B. And then I come out here and I go, you know the craziest thing happened to me last week. Suddenly everybody's back on. What is it about story? It, I think God wired us to see ourselves in narrative, in story. So we need First John because we need to know some facts. We need to know that God is love. We need to know that you can be certain of your salvation. But the Bible is more than just a set of propositional uh, truth. It's certainly more than a list of rules to follow. It's certainly more than a list of examples. It's also narrative. It's story. And that is where we're going in this brand new series. I'm calling it A Place in His Story, and it's all about First and Second Samuel. So if you would, turn back 3,000 years to First Samuel. Turn in your Bibles 3,000 years to First Samuel chapter 1. We find ourselves in the time of the judges. You remember judges. Israel is being ruled over by these judges, and things are just getting worse and worse. One commentator calls it the Canaanization of Israel. They're supposed to go in the promised land. They're supposed to be a blessing to everybody. Instead, the people of God are being so influenced by the world that eventually you can't tell the world apart from the people of God. Things are in a downward spiral, and the book of Judges ends, you know, like this. It says, yeah, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, some of this may sound familiar to modern ears. And no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you and I would read that, and we would go, well, that's the point. There was a king in Israel, Yahweh. There was a king in Israel, the Lord God. He was just being dismissed. There was no earthly king, and that leads us to Samuel. First and second Samuel would have originally just been Samuel. It would have been all 55 chapters together because it tells sort of the narrative arc of three main characters. The prophet Samuel, who's like the last judge of Israel. Prophet Samuel. Then the rise and fall of the first king of Israel, Saul. And then while his narrative arc is happening, Samuel will tell us the story of the rise and fall of David. King David. So we're going to be Samuel, Saul, and David. We're going to be focused on those three characters throughout the study. Along the way, we meet a crying woman in Shiloh named Hannah. We meet a faithful friend, Jonathan. We've got the story of, of Samuel hearing the call from God and thinking it's Eli. You've got the story of the, uh, 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 David and Goliath. 
is in here, David and Bathsheba. You've got all these narrative, and if we don't start the series sermon, we'll never get to them. But along the way, one of the shocking things, and I would encourage you, just like we did with First John, it's going to be a lot more material, but I would challenge you. You might not be able to do it all in one chunk like we did with First John each day, but why don't you start reading First Samuel? Why don't you start reading First and Second Samuel? That way we're on the same page. You're reading it throughout the week, and one of the things you'll discover is there's two ways to look at this, either just like life. Either, there'll, there'll be whole pages will go by, and there'll be no explicit mention of God. So one way to look at this is this is an interesting book in the Bible because whole pages go by and you don't see God. Another way to look at it is God is in every sentence. And that's how it is in life. Sometimes we don't directly see the intervention of God, but you know he is, he's commanding every sentence of our lives. And what I think we will see from these people 3,000 years ago is that just like they discovered, we too have a place in his story. So let's get right to it. I have divided chapter one. We're going to dive right in. That was the introduction. We're going to dive right into chapter one today. We're going to try to get through chapter one. And since it is a narrative, I've divided chapter one into three scenes, three scenes. Uh, Just so no one panics, scene one is the longest. Uh, (laughs) Scene one, I I call scene one tears in the tabernacle. Scene two, peace in the pain. And scene three, I failed to find something that would alliterate, so I just went (laughs) the blank page. Scene one, tears in the tabernacle. Scene two, peace in the pain. Scene three, blank, the blank page. Let's get right to it. Scene one, tears in the tabernacle. First Samuel, chapter one, verse one. Once upon a time, no, 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 this is not a fairy tale. This is real. This is real history, right? So we don't have to say once upon a time. We can introduce, we we are introduced to this man out in the country. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. That was the hardest part of my sermon. Uh, so far so good, right? We meet this guy, he's a good guy. Apparently he's from the hill country. Uh, he gives us a little background because we don't know who he is. So country bumpkin out there named Elkanah. So far so good. Verse two, he had two wives. Oh, n- not cool, bro, not cool. <laughs> uh, we won't get bogged down in this, but let me just say throughout the Old Testament, we see multiple wives, we see polygamy, and Every single time it leads to chaos, destruction, and disaster. So when you read the Old Testament, you say, well, it seems like polygamy was accepted. It was accepted. Let me tell you, it's a sin now. It was a sin then. The Bible never uh, 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 explicitly authorizes it or approves it and never shows it in a favorable light. The Puritans used to say that, well, in the time of the patriarchs, it was still a sin, but maybe it was a sin of ignorance. Either way, it contradicts what God clearly lays out in Genesis. For this reason, a man, singular, shall leave father and mother and cling to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. So we should not be surprised when we see in the Old Testament these multiple wives lead to what? It leads to disaster and destruction, and it's no different here. Look, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Uh, And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So right away we see the pain. 
Hannah's pain is both personal and theological. What do I mean? Personal. Every married couple who has walked through the journey of infertility knows the pain, the personal pain of that journey. But I say theological because as believers, as the people of God, it seems like you hurt doubly because like Hannah, the people of God know it's not just a matter of uh, chemicals. It's not just a matter of fate. It's not just a matter of sort of, well, whatever is, is. That we believe a loving and holy God is behind the conception of every child ultimately. And so we believe if God has a say in this, it's not just personal pain, it's theological pain as people who can't have children, who long to have children, cry out why God it's not just personal it's theological and that's not just true for those that are literally in the pain of infertility right now but anyone who has unfulfilled longings why God why won't you heal my husband why won't you save my grandson Lord why won't you uh, send me someone to fall in love with and, and be married I long to be married whatever it is when you have that pain of unfulfilled longings. You understand, it's not just personal, it's theological. But in the midst of this, they were still going to church. They weren't forsaking going to what their version of attending worship. Verse three, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The capital had not yet been moved to Jerusalem and uh, and the temple, of course, had not yet been built. But there was a house of worship at Shiloh where uh, the Ark of the Covenant, for example, the Ark of the Covenant was being kept. And though there wasn't a, 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 the the most famous priest we have there in in Israel during this time is Eli. And we're introduced to him here. And he's got these two sons that are, they're like beasts, these two, Hophni and Phinehas. And they were priests of the Lord. And they weren't very good ones. But they would go and worship, and part of the worship, okay, so they would go and worship, part of the worship, it was like a big holiday. You'd go up, you'd offer your sacrifices, and then as a Thanksgiving offering, whatever part of that sacrifice was, some of it was used, and of course Hophni and Phinehas made sure they got their portion, but then the rest was used for a big feast. So it was a big holiday celebration, right? We do the same thing, Easter, Christmas, a big part of that is feasting together with family. But people who are in pain know that ironically, some of the most painful times in your year is when everybody else is celebrating and you're brokenhearted. And it's almost doubly painful because you have to look at all these smiling faces and inside, you're dying inside. And that's what we have here. On the day, verse four, when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, bless his heart, he, felt, he feels bad, he loves Hannah. His heart is with, with Hannah, but To Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. I think Elkanah's trying to be a sensitive husband, but you can't, and you almost wonder if he made it worse, because look, verse six, and her rival, look at Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Can you imagine? So it went on year by year year. Most of us can survive a trial if it's just for a short season, but month after month of frustration, year after year, having to hear it from Penina, being reminded of this pain, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. 
She's weeping. She's lost all appetite. Now there's so much. Not only is this the word of God, it is exquisite storytelling. Because the greatest storytellers don't just tell you, they show you. And everybody who reads this can feel the humanity here on so many levels. You got, uh, you got, you got Penina just, just, just irritating her, intentionally trying to provoke, right? Why? Because you, you got his heart, Hannah. You got Elkanah's heart, but I got his kids. What have you got? You got nothing. You can't bring anything to this family. You're worthless. But me, look at me. I got all these kids. Oh, so many mouths to feed. How many mouths do you have to feed? Oh, yourself. And even she can't eat. And so poor Elkanah trying to make things better. You can't help it. God bless him. He's just trying to be a good husband. He's completely tone deaf. And he, so what does he do? He feels bad, so he gives out all the proportion for Penina. And so she, okay, one for you, one for you. Everybody got their food, whatever. And for Hannah, he gives her double. And Hannah's going, I, I can't even eat myself. I'm so sick over this, and I got no mouths to feed. Setting an extra place at the table doesn't help, honey. And can you imagine Penina, the cruelty? Can you hear it? It says, the Bible says, she intentionally provoked Okay, do all your children have all your food? Oh my, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What's that, dear? Can you say it again louder? Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, that's right, she doesn't have children. Well, doesn't she want children? Oh, she wants children very much. Well, doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? She does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing Daddy. Well, doesn't God love Miss Hannah? I, you know, what do you think? Oh, and by the way, Hannah, I meant to tell you great news. You can celebrate. I'm pregnant again. You hear it, right? You got his heart. I got his kids. Nasty, vicious. Isn't that something? The one who, uh, Hannah would be an incredible mother, full of grace, never, that's literally what her name means, full of grace. Never fights back. You never see her, you know, you never once in the scripture hear Hannah like, hold my earrings, right? Like that never happens, right? Instead, she's just graciously going through this. Isn't that something? Hannah would have made an incredible mother. And the Lord, for purposes known only to God, has closed her womb. And wicked, mean-spirited, terrible mom, Penina, can have all sorts of kids. Now, doesn't it sometimes seem to be that way? The people you're praying for that, are, that can't have children, you, you, you pray with them and you go, Lord, what, what's going on here? These would make incredible parents. And the Lord has his purposes. And for everybody who's walked through this pain, when you say, God, why is this happening to me? All I can tell you is you'll never find the answer into this and the me. Because the story of God is much greater than any of us. And I don't know the answers. But we, we learned that it was the Lord for his own purposes who was doing something. Okay. Well, my point is simply this. No one understands. There are tears in the tabernacle and people, Sunday after Sunday, they come to church and I have to believe there are people just like Hannah. There are tears in the tabernacle and nobody can understand them. Not even their best friend. Not even their husband. <laughs> Look, you want an example? Look at verse eight. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, oh, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Are you seriously asking me this? Can you imagine? Are, are you, did you really just ask me why I would? You know what, Elkanah? I think you need to go take a long ride on your donkey. 
If this were written in uh, Alabama 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew would have said, oh, Elkanah, bless your heart. <laughs> you cringe for the guy, don't you? He's trying to say the right things. He's trying to be, he's, try, he's trying, just clueless. He just doesn't get it. And then he says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Oh, if I had done his premarital counseling, it's not, maybe. <laughs> it's like, you, you cringe for the guy. In, in other words, what, look, what he should, what he's trying, I get it. He's trying to be a stand-up guy. He's trying to say, look, uh, you know, what a, you, you got me. <laughs> what he should have said is, are you not more to me than 10 sons? That would have been the thing to say. In other words, no matter what happens, you're enough for me. I love you. Instead, hey, so you can't have kids. You still got vitamin E. Like, what? who does? What? Come on, Elkanah. Well, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, okay, Hannah did the right thing. She's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to pray. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. There they are, tears in the tabernacle. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Uh, this razor touches head business, this is the Nazarite vow. In other words, she's saying, I want a child to dedicate to you completely. Uh, now, do you think she's making a bargain with God? If she is, she doesn't understand how grace works. But I don't think so. Not based on what we learned from, about Hannah later. I, I don't think so. I think more than anything, she wanted a child. She knew this was God's, ultimately in God's hands. And so she wanted a child to be able to present that child to God. She wanted a son to present to God. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. See, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Let me ask you, you ever been there? You ever been there? You ever been so deep in pain? I'm not talking about you had a headache. I'm not talking about you got a sprained ankle. I'm talking about the pain on the inside. And you knew what you wanted to say to God, but you couldn't make the words come out. Sometimes prayers are just tears, and that's all you can do. I'm talking about the deep inside pain, the year after year longings. And sometimes you, 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 you want to talk to God. You, you, you want to say something, but your lips are, but you can't make anything come out. Can I tell you the good news from this story? Apparently God hears those just fine. Amen. He hears them. He heard Hannah. He hears you. So, my husband doesn't understand. I'm in a terrible home life situation. I got Penina, wicked, mean-spirited Penina, jabbing me at every turn. Nobody understands. So when she goes to the house of the Lord, maybe the pastor will understand. Well, let's keep reading. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Oh, come on. Nobody understands. Eli said to her, he rebukes her. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. No one understands. Well, here's what I want you to see. Look at Hannah's response. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, 
I'm a woman troubled in spirit. No, it's not what you think. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Look at the key words here. Troubled in spirit, anxiety, vexation, pouring out my soul. Here's my point about scene one, which I told you was the longest. Scene one, I would summarize like this. When no one understands, when there's tears in the tabernacle and you've got that deep inside pain, I'm here to tell you there is one who understands. When your husband doesn't get it, when your best friend doesn't get it, when the religious experts doesn't get it, your pastor doesn't understand, bring your tears to the tabernacle. In times of glad celebration, come to the house of the Lord. In times of weeping, come to the house of the Lord. This is the application for you from scene one of chapter one. I I, I tell you this because I've met so many people who say, uh, after the loss of a loved one, after some deep internal pain, they share with me their struggle, and they say, I'm torn. I know I need to be in church, pastor. I know I need that encouragement week after week. But if I come, I'll just cry the whole time. If that's you, listen to me then come and cry. Keep coming back. Bring your tears to the tabernacle. They're okay here. The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, but also weep with those who weep. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. And it may be that in this season of life, that's not you, but you may be there one day in that season of life. And so you're ironically here today, you're hearing me, so if you're watching this online, this message I guess is for you, but this message may be for future you. If you ever get to that point, keep coming back year after year. Hannah went to the house of the Lord. Bring your tears to the tabernacle. Scene two, I call it peace in the pain. Verse 17, so she explains to Eli, we, we, will, we will not take time to mention how Eli, who could not keep his own house in order, is, is getting on to Hannah for being drunk. We won't even talk about the morality police who throw stones at others when their whole house is a disaster. We, I guess we did talk about that. All right, verse 17. Then Eli answered. He, admi- he realizes his mistake. He sees what's happening. And so he says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. I don't think it's just because Eli answered it. I think that Hannah has come to a place of surrender where she can receive that peace. And look, verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Oh, It's like, Hannah, you're looking like your old self again. Hey, what's happened? You have a new glow about you. Something's happened. Did you get that prayer request that you wanted? Did it come true? No. Are your circumstances changed? No. What happened? Something happened in the tears in the tabernacle. Something happened where Hannah did what, what, what an Israelite, what, uh, let's see, that'd be about uh, a thousand years later would have done in 1 Peter 5 when he instructed, Peter said, cast your burdens unto the Lord for he cares for you. Now, this is what I want you to see. She's got peace. She's eating again. Her face is no longer sad. Something has happened. She's come to a place of complete surrender and acknowledgement. Lord, I don't understand, but you've got your reasons. I'm going to trust you. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. 
Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Not that, he, of course, not that he had forgotten her. That's Old Testament language when the Lord visibly acts, right? The Lord remembers Noah. The Lord remembers Abraham. It doesn't mean he forgot. It means now he's about to visibly act in accordance to his covenant. And in due time, verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son. There it is. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Awesome. Now, for anyone who is here or knows someone in tremendous pain, you have to understand the lessons of verse 18, 19, 20. Here's why. They run counterintuitive to most of what you hear, sometimes even in the church. Sometimes even in the church, you get the feeling, you hear people's testimony, you see these baptisms, and you look around and people all look so put together. And if you're not careful, you think, oh, I see how it works. You pray, uh, and then you, uh, you, uh, uh, you, you uh, get, get what you want. I, I mean, you pray, uh, Hannah prayed, you get a son. I guess that's it. So the whole deal is you, you go, you ask God, and, and boom, you get, you get and, and that's how it works. A lot of us, it, it runs completely counter. The verses go 18, 19, 20. She prays, she, verse 18, verse 19, she worships God in thanksgiving. Verse 20, she gets a son, her circumstances change. Let me tell you, that is exactly opposite of how we think it should go. She gets, uh, uh, verse, verse 18, she gets peace. Everybody look back at verse 18. She gets the peace. Her face is no longer sad. She can eat again. Everybody got it? She gets the peace. Verse 19, she worships God in thanksgiving. Verse 20, her circumstances change. Here's why I'm making such a big deal about that. Most of us live life like that has to be completely backwards. We cannot understand that. Most of us would say this. Verse 20 should have been first. When her circumstances finally changed, then verse 19. Then she'll go back to church and thank the Lord for what he did. Then verse 18, she'll be at peace. If my circumstances change, then I'll give you praise. Then I can be at peace. And here the Bible says, nope, you got it backwards. First you can be at peace, child of God. First you be at peace. You come to a place where you say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing or why, but I cast my burden upon you. This is obviously for your purposes. This is way above me. Then you praise, and I'm going to thank you in advance for whatever you do. I will hallelujah anyhow. I'm going to thank you in advance. Then the circumstances change, or they don't. Then verse 20, and the rest of your story. And for every time the Lord answers in such an amazing way here, uh, 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 of course, there are those where... Uh, uh, the answer, for whatever reason, continues to be no or wait, but my point here in peace in the pain is just that. Why aren't you entitled to walk in peace now? In Christmas, I said it this way. When it comes to peace, stop waiting for it. Start walking in it. Why should a child of God have to wait till the MRI results come back before you can have peace? Why can't you have peace now? You're a child of God. Why should a Christian have to wait until after the test scores come in and you find out if you passed or failed that important test? You can walk in peace now. Why? Because whatever happens, God who remembered the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt and got them out in Exodus, Hannah's going, God, you who are the Lord of hosts. What you did in Egypt, I'm believing you can do for this country bumpkin that you can do for me, Lord. 
this, 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 this woman here in Shiloh. Why do I have to wait until after I get what I long for? I may get it or I may not, but I know I've been remembered by the Lord. And so there's tears in the tabernacle, but there can be peace in the pain. There can be praise in the offering before we know the end of the story. And finally, scene three. Tears in the tabernacle, peace in the pain. And scene three, I'm calling the blank page. And this maybe was on my heart because of uh, Mother's Day next week or parent-child dedication today, but I think you'll see clearly what a profound dedication this is. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So now they're home, uh, they've got the, uh, 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 Hannah has the child Samuel, and now they're going back to Shiloh. Verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So she's offering him up, and he's going to be a servant there at the temple in Shiloh unto the Lord. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. See, this husband has learned something. He's like, I'm going to stop saying uh, really dumb things. I'm just going to say, honey, uh, it's your call. Uh, (laughs) But in this case, he's sensitive, and he's right. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Boy, that's a great gift, a husband who is sensitive to the wife, but also sensitive to the word of God. That's good. So the husband remained, excuse me, so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, in the ancient Near East, the weaning, the child could have been three or even four years old. Uh, uh, The point is, until he was able to really eat solid food, but you see the humanity, don't you, packed into that little verse. You see the and, and, and again, with Mother's Day uh, coming up, I, I suppose maybe I'm preaching my Mother's Day sermon a week early. Uh, so on Mother's Day, if you're disappointed, you can always, after church, just watch this one again. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you can imagine that uh, mother holding that uh, tender child, looking in those eyes that only a mother can uh, look into, and that, um, that, that, those sounds. And, and eventually, the mom can even distinguish the, that's the really hungry cry, and that's the, I, I, I don't want to go to bed cry. And that, like, you know, she can parse that out, and then the little cries turn into words and little syllables, and knowing uh, that she's going to give him to be a servant in the Lord's temple. It's incredible humanity. And when she'd see, weaned him, you know, that's, that's, it's one thing to make that vow. I'm going to dedicate him to you. It's another to keep it. And when she weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. They slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord. Here she's talking to Eli, the lowercase l. It just means, oh, sir. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord. Remember me? All right? I'm the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. She realizes this child's a gift from God. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. You might say she's giving him up, but she's not giving him up to the temple or to Eli. No, 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 she's giving him up to the Lord. 
And in this way, she is an example for all of us on a parent-child dedication day to think about. Our children, whether they're grown or if we think about grandchildren, or if you say, well, I don't have children, well, then that means that you don't have to be a biological mom or dad to have spiritual children in the faith. You do realize that. You have a responsibility and a chance to love all sorts of kids that are not your kids. You can love them. You can care for them. Think about, in my own life, the heroes. Oh, this is why I urge parents, keep your kids in church. Don't make them look for heroes. If all the, uh, how do I say this? You, want, you don't want all the heroes to be outside the church. And when I look back on my life, many of my heroes, as I think about it, they're church people. Let them have some heroes in the church. Let them have some role models in the church, even people that aren't their mom and dad. They go, that's who I want to be like. That's who I want to emulate. People you can point to. Our children are gifts from the Lord in order that we might nurture them in the training and instruction of the Lord. I love this language. I've lent him to the Lord. In order that we might prepare, we've got to prepare our kids to leave us. We've got to prepare them for eternity. Children are not a shrine at which we worship. God alone is to be worshiped, which means my job is to do two things. Present my child to Christ and present Christ to my child. That's my goal. That's your job, parents. Uh, uh, So much stress and so much anxiety is around, will will they be the best at school? Will they get the best grades? Will they be well-liked? Will they be a good athlete? Will they get all these extracurriculars? Whoa, 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 whoa. Follow that through, will you? Follow that through. What if your kid not only excels at athletics, what if he's like the one? The one. And one day he becomes a major league baseball pitcher. Hmm? What if? Follow that through. And here he is, made it to the major leagues. But he doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You'd trade it all, wouldn't you? That's all I'm asking you to do. Follow that line of thought. What if, that, what if she becomes Einstein? And she's going to be the, the greatest scientist the world has ever known. But if she doesn't know Jesus, you'd trade it all? wouldn't you? So all I'm saying is, if that's the case, then parent that way now. And here's what I mean. Here's how you do it. You take a blank page. You take a blank piece of paper, and you put their name at the top. And you've got how you'd write in that story. You know exactly who they should marry. Some of you have picked that out now. They're not even born. They're still in the womb, and you have arranged their marriage. (laughs) Good for you. You know exactly what they should do. You know exactly the career. You've got your whole, it's a blank page. Their name's at the top, and you've got all these blanks you would fill in. This is going to be their career. This is going to be their college. This is going to be their college football team. I don't care. I don't, I had somebody when I moved here said, Democrat, Republican, I don't care, but you're going to be an Auburn fan, or whatever, right, you know? I'd fill in all these things. Here's how I'd fill it in. You take that blank page, and you offer it up to God, and you say, you fill in the blanks. Lord, you fill in the blanks. Here's my kid, you fill in the blanks. Because honestly, I, I can't even write my own story. I'll be honest, I can't even do a great job at running my own life. What makes me think I can figure out how to fill in the blanks? You're a better author of their story anyway. So I'll be honest, if I'm filling in the blanks for my kid, I'll just be honest. It's ease, prestige, and proximity. 
I want them to have a fairly comfortable life. I want them to be well-respected, earn a good living. And, you know, honestly, I want them close. That's my life dream for those kids. But God, you know, what if you fill in the blank? And what if instead of ease, prestige, and proximity, I get the end of a driveway and a U-Haul and a dream of God in their heart? Well, then it won't be easy. Nope. And what if they don't get prestige? Probably not. And what if they live far away from me? (laughs) Yeah. Then I have lent them to the Lord. They're the Lord's. And I'm going to trust you to write a better story than I can write. Hannah couldn't have seen it then. Uh, Perhaps somehow she knew. We, of course, can see it. How did Hannah do that? How did Hannah, I mean, what grace, what humanity. The musician's going to come and lead us in a time of response. You know, if you ask, if you honestly ask, how does Hannah do this? How do you come to a point of surrender where you would give up everything? You would even lend your child to the Lord. You would even say, I would give up my son. If you think about that, I would give up my daughter. If you think about that, uh, you stumble upon the answer even in asking the question, don't you? How, God, how can I find the grace to give my only begotten son? Okay. The grace to trust a child with the Lord, to say, God, here's the blank page. Here's the kid's name. Here's all the blanks. And believe me, I have, God, I have given you some ideas in pencil. (laughs) But I know at the end of the day, you're going to write a better story. So I'm going to trust him. And my deepest longing is that as you fill in the blanks of their life, as you have dreams for their life, as you create the will for their life, my deepest prayer is that my kid will sign their name at the bottom and that the faith of Hannah becomes the faith of Samuel. See, that the faith of Ruth became the faith of Jesse, which became the faith of David. See, that there's this lineage of faith as blank page after blank page as child is being lent up to the Lord. So, if you're here and you got tears, bring them to the tabernacle. Hmm? If you have pain, I don't want you to wait for your peace. As a child of God, I want you to walk in it. You can have peace today, even without the answer to your prayer or your circumstances. Why? Trust in a loving God. And for anyone who has a child or a grandchild or someone they love and they care about, blank page to the Lord. Lend them to the Lord. Dedicate them to the Lord. Get them, train them up in the instruction of the Lord. You are training them up to leave. Ultimately, you're training them for eternity. Parent like that now. Don't wait. Parent them like that now. And we can do this, of course. Again, it's like God is behind every sentence because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He gave his only begotten son. That's how we know we can trust him forever. He showed us on the cross. Let's pray. God, as we begin this brand new series, give us grace to walk through First and Second Samuel to drink deeply from the word of God, to be nourished straight out of the Bible. And God, grant to us that we would be sensitive to those who are in great pain around us, help us to encourage and love. And for anybody who's watching this online, they can't, they, it, the pain is too deep. God, let them begin to bring those tears right into the tabernacle. For those who are needing peace, I pray they could have peace right now in the pain. 
before their circumstances are answered the way they think they should be. Even before, even now, they can walk in peace. And I pray, oh God, for that blank page to the Lord, for all of us, for those we love, that we would lend them as Hannah did, offer them unto the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.